We hear the Word of God this morning from the book of Jonah. If you're using the church Bible, that's on page 775. The book of Jonah, chapter 3, page 775. We pick up the the reading at the end of chapter 2 and what should really be, I think, part of chapter 3, verse 10 of chapter 2. Let's hear the Word of God. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah up out on dry land. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. Our Father, may the words of my mouth and may the meditation of our hearts Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Well, we've been looking at this book of Jonah uh, over these summer weeks, and as we've followed the narrative, the narrative is being driven by two questions. What is going to happen to Jonah, and what is going to happen to Nineveh? And the answer to those questions is going to now begin to fall out in the unfolding story as it begins here in chapter 3. The story of the answer to the question about what's going to happen to Jonah begins here and then is completed in chapter 4, and what happens to Nineveh is spelt out in the second part of this chapter. And in both cases, what happens is surprising a surprising work of God. Because there is nothing, nothing in Nineveh and nothing in the story of Jonah that would have prepared us for the act of mercy that is coming on God's part. It's completely unexpected. It is undeserved. Two miracles, two supernatural works of God are described in the life of a reluctant prophet and in the life of a wicked city. And in what happens, the language that Jonah discovered as he prayed to God in chapter 2 finds itself expounded and worked out in practice. There at the end of that prayer, you notice those words at the end of verse 9 of chapter 2, salvation, that is rescue, deliverance, salvation belongs to the Lord. We cannot save ourselves. We cannot climb up to heaven on the record of our own good works. We cannot rescue ourselves from everlasting danger. Salvation, rescue, deliverance, if it's going to come, must come from the Lord. And so it does, as we'll see. Now, one of the other things about this book of Jonah we've noticed, but not focused on, is this gigantesque motive. Words like great and marvelous and large and exceeding 
point us to things in the grand scale of things. Everything is a grand scale. The task that Jonah had to leave where he was and go to Nineveh, well, that was a great distance. Nineveh itself was a great city. We're told that. In fact, later on in this chapter, we're told it was an exceedingly great city, a very great city. The fish, the fish, the famous fish that rescues Jonah when he's chucked into the water, that fish was a large fish, a great fish. And when the storm assailed Jonah on the boat, it was an overwhelming storm. It was a massive storm, a storm unlike anything that had come before. And when the people of Nineveh repent, well, so many of them repent. The people of Nineveh believed God. It was an extensive response to the preaching of the Word of God. And that, that gigantic gigant esque motif is very important in terms of how this book speaks to you and I. It speaks to you and I about the nature of our sin. I know whether you may not be a Christian here this morning and the very use of the word is offensive to you, and I don't apologize for that because it's a Bible word, but it's a reality about which the Bible speaks. And it says that sin is great. It's extensive. We count on our one hand the things we think we've done in the last week or so that we think are bad, and there are not many. We can probably count up to five of them. But in fact, if we knew our own hearts, sin is extensive, it's big. And it's seen not just in those outward visible demonstrations of how evil it is when a man rapes a woman or an adult interferes with or assaults a child or a husband batters his wife or ISIS blows up civilians or some other terrible catastrophe in the world at the human level of action and activity. We think of sin in those categories. But the Bible leads us to see that sin begins. It finds its origin inside the human heart. It's out of the, out of the heart that evil things come. Murders and, and evil of all that nature come from inside of us. The seeds are there within our hearts. And you know that while you may be appalled at the violence and the action that you've seen in Charlottesville this, this week, you know that in your own house and in your own home and in your own living room and in your own private space, you've said things, thought things that show that the seed, the seed of racism is in your heart. And that's only one thing, one area. Or there's someone in your life who is an absolute pain in your neck and you've wished they weren't there. You've wished their death, though you haven't thought that. But wishing they weren't there means wishing that they were out of the way, that they were not there, that they were dead. The seed of every sin is in our hearts. Sin is great. God's mercy, God's mercy, as we're going to find out, is greater still. Huge, extensive, very large is the mercy of God. And the mission of the church, 
The mission of the church is not just to reach the people we know or to reach the person sitting next to me or, or reach even the children in my home. The mission of the church is to reach the world, the nations, right around the globe. There is no limit to the work of the church in getting the gospel out. In some ways, it's easier to get the gospel out to people we don't live with who are far away in the corner, other corners of the world. It's harder to get the gospel out to the people we know that we don't like. Isn't it? The mission of the church is a huge, large mission. And so sin is great. God's mercy is great. And the church's mission is great. So I want to look with you at the surprising lessons then of this chapter. First of all, that it is a surprising mercy that God approached Jonah. Look at what it says. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now, it would be very easy, wouldn't it, just to pass that by. It's kind of, you expect to read that in the Bible. Let's just get on to the action, shall we? But those words are words that we need to pause over and ponder. We assume that we know what they mean, but throughout the Bible we discover that the word of the Lord comes to people. I think perhaps one of the earliest usages of this expression in the Bible, I didn't have time this morning just to double-check to make sure it's the first, it may well be the first, but certainly one of the earliest uses of this expression in the Bible is when God comes to Abraham. Do you remember the story where God takes Abraham out under the night sky, points him to the heavens and the stars in the universe above, and the word of the Lord came to Abraham to make a promise and, and to point out these and, and to tell him that as innumerable as the stars in the sky that he could observe he was going to have offspring. Not just natural offspring, but believing offspring. People who would not only share the genes of Abraham, but share the faith of Abraham. And if you're in the room this morning, you, and you're a believer, you share in the faith of Abraham. And it is a remarkable thing that the God of creation and redemption speaks. The God who made everything. If you Take for a moment the point at which there is nothing else but, but God. You will know that God, with nothing else, that is no creation, no universe, no people, no angels, God alone in Himself doesn't talk. He has no need to speak. We are given insights in the Bible into the communication that goes on within the Godhead. And it's usually illustrated to us as if there are conversations going on. But we know that God doesn't speak. He doesn't have parts. He doesn't have a body. He has no material functions in that sense. He doesn't have a voice. But the God of creation created creatures who are able to communicate with one another by words. And when God speaks, He chooses to speak to created beings. He chooses to speak about the redemption that is in Jesus Christ through authorized 
agents, authorized agents, principally the holy prophets and the holy apostles. And the word of the Lord came to these people. The very, the, the very language, if you think about it for a moment, when the word of the Lord came to Jonah, when the word of the Lord came to Abraham, when the, the word of the Lord came to Israel, it was the Lord coming with the word. It was the Lord coming and binding himself to these people, giving of himself to these people. When the word of the Lord came, you understand the Lord of the word came to Jonah. Jonah is God is giving himself to Jonah. God is binding himself to Jonah. God is identifying himself with Jonah. Now, of course, God can speak directly. Well, you said a moment ago he doesn't have a voice. How does he speak directly to people? Well, God created voices, didn't he? He created your voice box. He created the lungs that fill it with air and enable you to speak He created you to work that way. He created the sounds that we make and so on. Uh, He started off with Scottish and the Scottish accent, and then everything was downhill from there. He created human speech and language. And so for God to create a voice by which you can be heard isn't a problem, is it? Not a problem at all. And so when Israel gathered at Mount Sinai, you remember the voice of God speaking to Moses thundered from the mountain. That's what it sounded like to them. They knew it was a voice, but the voice was overwhelmingly awesome. They were terrified by the voice of God. They said to Moses, Moses, you go up the mountain. We're just going to back off here. Why don't you talk to God and let Him talk to you, and you tell us what God has said? They were terrified. And then again, you remember when Jesus was baptized by John the Baptist, or when the disciples were on the Mount of Transfiguration, a voice was heard again, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. God can choose to speak with a voice He creates to His creatures. He can do that. But He doesn't normally do that. How does He normally speak? He normally speaks through authorized Agents, whether angels, angels he sent, for example, to speak to Daniel, angels he sent to speak to Abraham through angels, but mostly through people in the Old Testament. Let's break this down. In the Old Testament, the word of the Lord came to the holy prophets. The prophets, and this is why we're interested in it, because Jonah is one of them. The prophets were people specially called and designated to be God's spokesperson. They enjoyed a unique access to God. So, for example, in the book of uh, Jeremiah, when, when God is challenging the false prophets who were coming to the people and telling the people what they wanted to hear, when God's challenging those false prophets, He says this. This is in Jeremiah chapter 23. For who among them, that is these false prophets, who among them has stood in the counsel of the Lord to see and hear His Word? And then a little further on, I did not send those prophets, yet they ran. 
I did not speak to those prophets, yet they prophesied. But if they had stood in my counsel, then they would have proclaimed my words to the people. God's complaint was those people had not been chosen. Those people had not been designated. Those people had not been in the counsel of the Lord. Those people had not been given the Lord's word to speak. So they were speaking only what the people wanted to hear. And that's why when a man emerged from the presence of the counsel of God, characteristically they say, thus says the Lord. And so in the Old Testament, if you don't receive the prophet, you don't receive the Lord. If you don't listen to the prophet, you're not listening to the Lord. To disregard them is to disregard the Lord. Whenever they speak, God speaks. Now in the New Testament, the word of the Lord comes, came to the, the holy apostles. Now, I said about the prophets. What did I say? They, they received the word of God in the counsel of the Lord. It may have been by a vision, for example. But God appears to them in a vision as he does to Ezekiel, as he does to Isaiah. You remember in Isaiah 6, he goes into the temple and there he sees the Lord high and exalted. It may be the appearance of the Lord in some form, maybe as an angel or as a man. It may be that the prophet is caught up into the heavenly temple. God creates this environment so that he can persuade the prophet of the reality of his experience. And in that context, gives him his word. Well, you say... The apostles of the New Testament were never at Mount Sinai. They didn't see all, hear all that thunder and lightning and the earthquake and all of the exterior visions of God that Moses did. They, they did not see, as Israel did, the big cloud of, of smoke and, and fire that led them through the desert. They, they did not see this, but, but for three years, from breakfast Till they went to bed at night. They were in the counsel of the Lord, weren't they? The God who appeared on Sinai as a storm, the God who appeared in the glory cloud that led Israel through the desert, the God who appeared to Adam in the garden, the God who spoke to Abraham in the desert, the God who appeared to Ezekiel and Isaiah put on flesh, and spoke in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they lived in the counsel of the Lord. And those apostles were called by Jesus to continue and complete the revelation that Christ came to bring. So that when Paul, one of the apostles called out of due time, but with a personal encounter with Jesus, similar to Isaiah's encounter with God there in the temple. Paul says this, that when he went to Thessalonica and preached, he could write to the people there in Thessalonica and say, we thank God constantly for this, that when you received the Word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the Word of man, 
but it's what it really is, the Word of God, which is at work in you believers. Both the prophets and the apostles stood in the presence of the same divine counsel, viewed from their different perspectives in the stream of God's salvation history. The prophets from the period before Christ came, the apostles at, the, at that point where the Lord Jesus was there among them, from their different perspectives, they stood in the presence of the same divine counsel. They heard the same word of God. They received the same message of God. And they were charged to speak the same word of truth, the gospel of our salvation. And they were both holy before God, both of them sanctified, holy prophets and holy apostles. So how does God speak to you and me today? You come and we read these words, the word of the Lord came to Jonah. In other words, Jonah was caught up into the counsel of the Lord and he heard the word of the Lord, like Isaiah did in Isaiah 6, when he saw the Lord high and lifted up, filling the temple. And then he heard the seraphim singing, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And then he heard God speak to him. Whom shall we send? Jonah. Jonah, with all his track record, was in, the, was in the presence of the Lord and God spoke to him. How does God speak to me? How does he speak to you? Well, in our day, the word of the Lord comes to us in Holy Scripture and especially in the preaching of it. The minister is told in 1 Timothy to preach the word in season and out of season. That is, whether it's expedient or not, whether it's convenient or not, whether it's appreciated or not. Why? Because all Scripture is God-breathed. In other words, all Scripture given by the prophets and the apostles is the gift of the Holy Spirit to the church. The Holy Spirit, who knows the deep things of God, the Bible says, who knows everything in the mind of God, has breathed out this Word, and He breathes through this Word. And this Word is not simply a sound on the, wa the, the wavelengths, the, the airwaves, not even is it the noise that's going on in your eardrums. But the Word of God is the very instrument of the Spirit of God to breathe life, to bring life-giving, joy-giving, life-transforming power and influence into your life and mine. That's how the Word of God comes to us. It came to the prophets like a fire. It can come like a fire to burn up all the dross in our lives. It comes as the breath of life to bring life to those who are dead. And God accommodates Himself to our language. He speaks to us today through authorized agents, through the Word preached, 
He comes regularly. And the Holy Spirit uses the Word to teach our minds and reach our hearts. Now that Word from the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Isn't that a remarkable thing? And you learn something about the surprising grace and mercy of God by that. The grace of God that takes the initiative to reach out to the unworthy and the broken. I, I mean, we don't have time this morning because I want to save up some of this for later when we get to chapter 4 where we begin to see God unpicking the very character and inner workings of the nature and, and psychology of this man. So I don't want to say too much about that, although it has application to some of the things we've already thought and prayed about today. But nonetheless, what we have in Jonah is a dysfunctional prophet. His life is dysfunctional. There's no fun in his life just as there's no fun in dysfunctional. Well, there's fun in dysfunctional, but he takes, dysfunctionality takes the fun out of function, dysfunctional. <laughs> ah, forget it. So he's a broken man. He's, he's a dysfunctional disciple. Do you remember what happened? Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Exactly the same words saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, exactly the same words. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. That's what happened the last time he heard the word of the Lord in the counsel of the Lord. He didn't like it. So he did the opposite. But here we find the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. We live in an unforgiving world where many a career has been ended by one mistake. And where somebody does get a second chance, it's usually probationary and with reduced responsibility and with the shadow of their failure constantly hanging over them or being brought up again. Isn't that often the case? But here we have a great insight into God's ways with His people. The writer, Jeremiah, in that great book of the Lamentations, is writing from the dungeon. He's crying out that the Lord would rescue him, and suddenly there's a revelation. A shaft of light comes across his mind as he's there in that dungeon. And he writes this, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. Jonah had to learn that. The word of the Lord came to him a second time. God knew he wasn't fit yet to be used. The man's character wasn't ready yet to do what, what God wanted him to do. And yet here is God coming a second time to this man and, and speaking to him about his needs. Now, you see, I want you to notice that when the Word of God came to Jonah a second time, it came to speak to Jonah in precisely the same terms as the Word of God had spoken when it came the first time. That was the point 
in Jonah's life where there was a fault line running beneath the surface of this spiritual life. I mean, God had used this man. God had used this man in his own nation to call his own nation back to himself. He had been a useful servant of God. He had a reputation for being faithful to God even when the king was against God and was resistant to God. He is, Jonah is God's spokesman and he does the job relatively well. He speaks out when he needs to speak out. But there was a fault line in his soul. He was a racist at heart. The fault line in his soul was very well me ministering the word of God to God's people, but don't ask me to go to Nineveh. Now, there's a lesson here for us. You may be here this morning in church, and there has been in your past, in your life, a point where God has been speaking to you about something. Oh, some matter, perhaps, in the way you think, your, your intellect reflects on Christian truth, for example. Let's start there. That's fairly objective, you know. You know better than God. You know better than the Bible. You know better than the minister. You may very well know better than the minister. But to know better than God? Maybe you have a controversy with some of the things that you read in the Bible. That's been your point of divergence. Or maybe God's spoken to you about your lifestyle. Or about your values. Whatever it may be, you, you know. The Holy Spirit is prompting you. You know, as I say those words, something has come into your mind. And you think to yourself, please don't mention my thing, Liam. That would be weird. But God's already mentioned it to you. And when God comes to speak to you again, when God is determined to bring you back to himself, when he speaks to you a second time, don't think for one moment that he'll talk about something that isn't wrong to you. He will bring you back to the very same place where your views and his views diverged where your heart had a controversy with God over the specific matter, God will bring you back to that place. We need to deal with this, God says. I want you to deal with this. I want our relationship to be reestablished. I want fellowship to be restored. I want communion to be enjoyed. Are you going to deal with this thing, this matter in your life? And there I'll find your way back to me. That's how the word of the Lord comes to us. You know, this matter of God's grace is an amazing thing, isn't it? Undeserved acceptance freely given to an unworthy offender by an unobligated giver. God is glad to do that. God comes with His Word. His Word disturbs us, but His Word also restores us. 
You know, you think about the movement of Jonah to this point. I think there are three elements I see in the movement of Jonah to this point. I'll just give you the elements and you can work them out for yourself. But here is a sinful man who has been pardoned by God. Here is a praying man, chapter 2, a praying man who has been answered by God. He cried, he was drowning, he cried out, and the big fish came along, swallowed him up, and became his submersible salvation. He was an afflicted man, stuck in the belly of that fish, struggling to breathe, Total darkness, burning flesh, dreadful, dreadful agonies of mind, afflicted, but he'd been helped. He'd been helped. Does God use affliction to get to me? Yes, he does. John Newton, in one of his old hymns, writes like this, In evil long I took delight, unawed by shame or fear, till a new object struck my sight, stopped my wild career. I saw one hanging on a tree in agonies and blood, who fixed his loving eye on me as near the cross I stood. Sure, never to my latest breath can I forget that look. It seemed to charge me with his death, though not a word he spoke. My conscience felt and owned the guilt and plunged me in despair. I saw my sins his blood had spilt and helped to nail him there. Alas, I knew not what I did, and now my tears were vain my trembling soul be hid, for I, the Lord, have slain. A second look he gave which said, I freely all forgive. This blood is for your ransom paid. I died that you might live. Yes. Beloved, when we are Afflicted, when the Word of God speaks harsh things to us, when the Word of God exposes the point of our resistance to God, it happens so that God may draw you back into mercy, into His grace and pardon and help and provide for you. It's a surprising mercy that God should approach this man. And it's a surprising mercy that God should use this man. For that's what his intention is. God says to this man, Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh. And so Jonah arose and went. I would not, if I were you, presume that God will give you a second chance. We cannot presume on God. To give a second chance to his people. Think of Abraham twice. To save his own skin, 
He put his wife at risk. Moses, who tried to be the savior of the Israelites, killed a man and had to spend 40 years in the desert, away from the court, away from the public eye, wandering around like a shepherd. Peter, Peter, whose great mission, captured by his great confession that was the basis on which the church of Jesus was to be built. You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And when a little girl of a thing sees him around the campfire when Jesus is arrested, and she says to him, don't I know you? You definitely don't. Haven't I seen you Galileans? Oh, you most certainly have not. Aren't you sure you're not one of his followers? Blankety, blankety, blank. I never knew this man. His great foundation of the church, his confession before this girl while he goes not only silent, but he denies it. And yet the Lord Jesus comes to Peter and says to Peter, Peter, do you love me? Question for everyone. Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? God's brought you here this morning. He's brought you here to hear his voice again. The word of the Lord comes to you today. God graciously is moving out towards you, calling you back to himself, speaking to your own conscience and to your own mind and heart. The word of the Lord has come to you perhaps a second time, perhaps a 42nd time, but maybe the last time. And today, today you must hear and heed the word of God. God is Don't bid him be silent. Don't push him away. Don't brush it under the carpet. Don't put it off to be considered tonight. But receive that word of him speaking to you, drawing near to you, saying to you, you know that I love you. You know that I haven't let you go. You know that I've preserved you for this moment. When the word of the Lord comes to you again, a second time. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that in your mercy we might hear you breaking through all the fog of our misconceptions, breaking down all the barriers of our prejudices and fears and disobedience, making your way to the forefront of our minds that we might embrace you, find you, worship you, adore you, know you, love you, have you. 
Lord, we pray that you would do this work by the Spirit in our hearts today. Perhaps someone is here, they're not converted, and today, today they have heard your word, and today they're going to trust your word. They're going to be like those people in Nineveh who believed God. They're going to believe you today. Lord, we pray that that would be so. We pray for ourselves, all of us as believers, that we would believe you. We pray this in Jesus' strong name. Amen.